Chapter 15 of Adam Bede This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Adam Bede by George Eliot Chapter 15 The Two Bedchambers Hetty and Dinah both slept in the second story, in rooms adjoining each other, meagerly furnished rooms, with no blinds to shut out the light, which was now beginning to gather new strength from the rising of the moon, more than enough strength to enable Hetty to move about and undress with perfect comfort. She could see quite well the pegs in the old painted linen press on which she hung her hat and gown. She could see the head of every pin on her red cloth pincushion. She could see a reflection of herself in the old-fashioned looking-glass, quite as distinct as was needful, considering that she had only to brush her hair and put on her nightcap. A queer old looking-glass. Hetty got into an ill temper with it almost every time she dressed. It had been considered a handsome glass in its day, and had probably been bought into the Poyser family a quarter of a century before, at a sale of genteel household furniture. Even now an auctioneer could say something for it. It had a great deal of tarnished gilding about it. It had a firm mahogany base, well supplied with drawers, which opened with a decided jerk and sent the contents leaping out from the farthest corners, without giving you the trouble of reaching them. Above all, it had a brass candle socket on each side, which would give it an aristocratic air to the very last. But Hetty objected to it, because it had numerous dim blotches sprinkled over the mirror, which no rubbing would remove and because, instead of swinging backwards and forwards, it was fixed in an upright position, so that she could only get one good view of her head and neck, and that was to be had only by sitting down on a low chair before her dressing-table. And the dressing-table was no dressing-table at all, but a small old chest of drawers, the most awkward thing in the world to sit down before, for the big brass handles quite hurt her knees, and she couldn't get near the glass at all comfortably but devout worshippers never allow inconveniences to prevent them from performing their religious rites, and Hetty this evening was more bent on her peculiar form of worship than usual. Having taken off her gown and white kerchief, she drew a key from the large pocket that hung outside her petticoat, and unlocking one of the lower drawers in the chest, reached from it two short bits of wax candle, secretly bought at Treddleston, and stuck them in the two brass sockets. Then she drew forth a bundle of matches and lighted the candles, and last of all, a small red-framed shilling looking-glass, without blotches. It was into this small glass that she chose to look first after seating herself. She looked into it, smiling and turning her head on one side, for a minute, then laid it down and took out her brush and comb from an upper drawer. She was going to let down her hair and make herself look like that picture of a lady in Miss Lydia Donathorne's dressing-room. It was soon done, and the dark hyacinthine curves fell on her neck. It was not heavy, massive, merely rippling hair, but soft and silken, running at every opportunity into delicate rings. But she pushed it all backward to look like the picture, and form a dark curtain, throwing into relief her round white neck. Then she put down her brush and comb and looked at herself, folding her arms before her, still like the picture. Even the old mottled glass couldn't help sending back a lovely image, none the less lovely because Hetty's stays were not of white satin, such as I feel sure heroines must generally wear, but of dark greenish cotton texture. Oh yes, she was very pretty. Captain Donathorne thought so. Prettier than anybody about Hayslope, prettier than any of the ladies she had ever seen visiting at the chase. Indeed, it seemed fine ladies were rather old and ugly, and prettier than Miss Bacon, the miller's daughter, who was called the beauty of Treddleston. 
and Hetty looked at herself tonight with quite a different sensation from what she had ever felt before. There was an invisible spectator whose eye rested on her like morning on the flowers. His soft voice was saying over and over again those pretty things she had heard in the wood. His arm was round her, and the delicate rose scent of his hair was with her still. The vainest woman is never thoroughly conscious of her own beauty till she is loved by the man who sets her own passion vibrating in return. But Hetty seemed to have made up her mind that something was wanting, for she got up and reached an old black lace scarf out of the linen press, and a pair of large earrings out of the sacred drawer from which she had taken her candles. It was an old, old scarf, full of rents, but it would make a becoming border round her shoulders, and set off the whiteness of her upper arm. And she would take out the little earrings she had in her ears. Oh, how her aunt had scolded her for having her ears bored, and put in those large ones. They were but coloured glass and gilding, but if you didn't know what they were made of, they looked just as well as what the ladies were. And so she sat down again, with the large earrings in her ears, and the black lace scarf adjusted round her shoulders. She looked down at her arms. No arms could be prettier down to a little way below the elbow. They were white and plump, and dimpled to match her cheeks. But towards the wrist, she thought with vexation that they were coarsened by butter-making and other work that ladies never did. Captain Donathorne couldn't like her to go on doing work. He would like to see her in nice clothes, and thin shoes, and white stockings, perhaps with silk clocks to them, for he must love her very much. No one else had ever put his arm round her and kissed her in that way. He would want to marry her and make a lady of her. She could hardly dare to shape the thought. Yet how else could it be? Marry her quite secretly, as Mr. James, the doctor's assistant, married the doctor's niece and nobody ever found it out for a long while after, and then it was of no use to be angry. The doctor had told her aunt all about it in Hetty's hearing. She didn't know how it would be, but it was quite plain the old squire could never be told anything about it, for Hetty was ready to faint with awe and fright if she came across him at the chase. He might have been earth-born, for what she knew. It had never entered her mind that he had been young like other men. He had always been the old squire at whom everybody was frightened. Oh, it was impossible to think how it would be. But Captain Donathorne would know. He was a great gentleman, and could have his way in everything, and could buy everything he liked. And nothing could be as it had been again. Perhaps some day she should be a grand lady, and ride in her coach, and dress for dinner in a brocaded silk, with feathers in her hair, and her dress sweeping the ground, like Miss Lydia and Lady Daisy, when she saw them going into the dining-room one evening as she peeped through the little round window in the lobby. Only she should not be old and ugly like Miss Lydia, or all the same thickness like Lady Daisy, but very pretty, with her hair done in a great many different ways, and sometimes in a pink dress, and sometimes in a white one. She didn't know which she liked best. And Mary Burge and everybody would perhaps see her going out in her carriage, or rather they would hear of it. It was impossible to imagine these things happening at Hayslope inside of her aunt. At the thought of all this splendor, Hetty got up from her chair, and in doing so caught the little red-framed glass with the edge of her scarf, so that it fell with a bang on the floor. But she was too eagerly occupied with her vision to care about picking it up, and after a momentary start, began to pace with a pigeon-like stateliness backwards and forwards along her room, in her colored stays and colored skirt, and the old black lace scarf round her shoulders, and the great glass earrings in her ears. How pretty the little puss looks in that odd dress. It would be the easiest folly in the world to fall in love with her. There is such a sweet baby-like roundness about her face and figure. The delicate dark rings of hair lie so charmingly about her ears and neck. 
Her great dark eyes with their long eyelashes touch one so strangely, as if an imprisoned frisky sprite looked out from them. Ah, what a price the man gets who wins a sweet bride like Hetty! How the men envy him who come to the wedding breakfast and see her hanging on his arm in her white lace and orange blossoms. The dear, young, round, soft, flexible thing. Her heart must be just as soft, her temper just as free from angles, her character just as pliant. If anything ever goes wrong, it must be the husband's fault there. He can make her what he likes. That is plain. And the lover himself thinks so too. The little darling is so fond of him, her little vanities are so bewitching, he wouldn't consent to her being a bit wiser. Those kitten-like glances and movements are just what one wants to make one's hearth a paradise. Every man under such circumstances is conscious of being a great physiognomist. Nature, he knows, has a language of her own which she uses with strict veracity, and he considers himself an adept in the language. Nature has written out his bride's character for him in those exquisite lines of cheek and lip and chin, in those eyelids delicate as petals, in those long lashes curled like the stamen of a flower, in the dark liquid depths of those wonderful eyes. How she will dote on her children. She is almost a child herself, and the little pink round things will hang about her like florets round the central flower, and the husband will look on, smiling benignly able, whenever he chooses, to withdraw into the sanctuary of his wisdom, towards which his sweet wife will look reverently, and never lift the curtain. It is a marriage such as they made in the golden age, when the men were all wise and majestic, and the women all lovely and loving. It was very much in this way that our friend Adam B. thought about Hetty. Only he put his thoughts into different words— if ever she behaved with cold vanity towards him, he said to himself, it is only because she doesn't love me well enough. And he was sure that her love, whenever she gave it, would be the most precious thing a man could possess on earth. Before you despise Adam as deficient in penetration, pray ask yourself if you were ever predisposed to believe evil of any pretty woman, if you ever could, without hard head-breaking demonstration, believe evil of the one supremely pretty woman who has bewitched you. No, people who love downy peaches are apt not to think of the stone, and sometimes jar their teeth terribly against it. Arthur Donnithorne, too, had the same sort of notion about Hetty, so far as he had thought of her nature of all. He felt sure she was a dear, affectionate, good little thing. The man who awakes the wondering, tremulous passion of a young girl always thinks her affectionate, and if he chances to look forward to future years— probably imagines himself being virtuously tender to her, because the poor thing is so clingingly fond of him. God made these dear women so, and it is a convenient arrangement in case of sickness. After all, I believe the wisest of us must be beguiled in this way sometimes, and must think both better and worse of people than they deserve. Nature has her language, and she is not unveracious, but we don't know all the intricacies of her syntax just yet and in a hasty reading we may happen to extract the very opposite of her real meaning. Long dark eyelashes. Now, what can be more exquisite? I find it impossible not to expect some depth of soul behind a deep grey eye with a long dark eyelash, in spite of an experience which has shown me that they may go along with deceit, peculation, and stupidity. But if, in the reaction of disgust, I have betaken myself to a fishy eye, there has been a surprising similarity of result. One begins to suspect at length that there is no direct correlation between eyelashes and morals, or else that the eyelashes express the disposition of the fair one's grandmother, 
which is on the whole less important to us. No eyelashes could be more beautiful than Hetty's, and now, while she walks with her pigeon-like stateliness along the room and looks down on her shoulders bordered by the old black lace, the dark fringe shows to perfection on her pink cheek. They are but dim, ill-defined pictures that her narrow bit of an imagination can make of the future, but of every picture she is the central figure in fine clothes. Captain Donnithorne is very close to her, putting his arm round her, perhaps kissing her, and everybody else is admiring and envying her, especially Mary Burge, whose new print dress looks very contemptible by the side of Hetty's resplendent toilette. Does any sweet or sad memory mingle with this dream of the future, any loving thought of her second parents, of the children she had helped to tend, of any youthful companion, any pet animal, any relic of her own childhood even? Not one. There are some plants that have hardly any roots. You may tear them from their native nook of rock or wall, and just lay them over your ornamental flower-pot, and they blossom none the worse. Hetty could have cast all her past life behind her, and never cared to be reminded of it again. I think she had no feeling at all towards the old house, and did not like the Jacob's ladder and the long row of hollyhocks in the garden better than other flowers, perhaps not so well. It was wonderful how little she seemed to care about waiting on her uncle, who had been a good father to her. She hardly ever remembered to reach him his pipe at the right time without being told— unless a visitor happened to be there, who would have a better opportunity of seeing her as she walked across the hearth. Hetty did not understand how anybody could be very fond of middle-aged people. And as for those tiresome children, Marty and Tommy and Toddy, they had been the very nuisance of her life, as bad as buzzing insects that will come teasing you on a hot day when you want to be quiet. Marty, the eldest, was a baby when she first came to the farm, for the children born before him had died, and so Hetty had had them all three, one after the other, toddling by her side in the meadow, or playing about her on wet days in the half-empty rooms of the large old house. The boys were out of hand now, but Toddy was still a day-long plague, worse than either of the others had been, because there was more fuss made about her, and there was no end to the making and mending of clothes. Hetty would have been glad to hear that she should never see a child again, they were worse than the nasty little lambs that the shepherd was always bringing in to be taken special care of in lambing time, for the lambs were got rid of sooner or later. As for the young chickens and turkeys, Hetty would have hated the very word hatching, if her aunt had not bribed her to attend to the young poultry by promising her the proceeds of one out of every brood. The round downy chicks peeping out from under their mother's wing never touched Hetty with any pleasure. That was not the sort of prettiness she cared about, but she did care about the prettiness of the new things she would buy for herself at Treddleston Fair with the money they fetched. And yet she looked so dimpled, so charming, as she stooped down to put the soaked bread under the hen-coop, that you must have been a very acute personage indeed to suspect her of that hardness. Molly, the housemaid, with a turn-up nose and a protuberant jaw, was really a tender-hearted girl, and, as Mrs. Poyser said, a jewel to look after the poultry but her stolid face showed nothing of this maternal delight, any more than a brown earthenware pitcher will show the light of the lamp within it. It is generally a feminine eye that first detects the moral deficiencies hidden under the dear deceit of beauty, so it is not surprising that Mrs. Poyser, with her keenness and abundant opportunity for observation, should have formed a tolerably fair estimate of what might be expected from Hetty in the way of feeling, and in moments of indignation she had sometimes spoken with great openness on the subject to her husband. 
She's no better than a peacock, as it strut about on the wall and spread its tail when the sun shone if all the folks in the parish was dying. There's nothing seems to give her a turn in the inside, not even when we thought Toddy had tumbled into the pit. To think of that, dear cherub, and we found her with her little shoes stuck in the mud and crying fit to break her heart by the far horse pit. But had he never minded it, I could see, though she's been at the nursing of the child ever since it was a baby. It's my belief her heart's as hard as pebble. Nay, nay, said Mr. Poyser, thee mustn't judge Hetty too hard. Them young girls are like the unripe grain. They'll make good meal by and by, but they're squashy as yet. They'd see Hetty'll be all right when she's got a good husband and children of her own. I don't want to be hard upon the gal. She's got clever fingers of her own, and can be useful enough when she likes, and I should miss her with butter, for she's got a cool hand. And let be what may, I'd strive to do my part by Anissa yours. And that I've done, for I've taught her everything as belongs to a house, and I've told her her duty often enough, though, God knows. I've no breath to spare, and that catching pain comes on dreadful by times. With them three girls in the house, I'd need have twice the strength to keep them up to their work. It's like having roast meat at three fires. As soon as you've blasted one, another's burning. Hetty stood sufficiently in awe of her aunt to be anxious to conceal from her so much of her vanity as could be hidden without too great a sacrifice. She could not resist spending her money in bits of finery which Mrs. Poyser disapproved, but she would have been ready to die with shame, vexation, and fright if her aunt had this moment opened the door and seen her with her bits of candle lighted and strutting about decked in her scarf and earrings. To prevent such a surprise, she always bolted her door, and she had not forgotten to do so to-night. It was well, for there now came a light tap, and Hetty, with a leaping heart, rushed to blow out the candles and throw them into the drawer. She dared not stay to take out her earrings, but she threw off her scarf and let it fall on the floor, before the light tap came again. We shall know how it was that the light tap came if we leave Hetty for a short time and return to Dinah at the moment when she had delivered Toddy to her mother's arms and was come upstairs to her bedroom adjoining Hetty's. Dinah delighted in her bedroom window. Being on the second story of that tall house, it gave her a wide view over the fields. The thickness of the wall formed a broad step about a yard below the window where she could place her chair and now the first thing she did on entering her room was to seat herself in this chair and look out on the peaceful fields beyond which the large moon was rising, just above the hedgerow elms. She liked the pasture best where the milch cows were lying, and next to that the meadow where the grass was half-mown and lay in silvered sweeping lines. Her heart was very full, for there was to be only one more night on which she would look out on those fields for a long time to come but she thought little of leaving the mere scene, for to her, bleak snowfield had just as many charms. She thought of all the dear people whom she had learned to care for among these peaceful fields, and who would now have a place in her loving remembrance forever. She thought of the struggles and the weariness that might lie before them in the rest of their life's journey, when she would be away from them, and know nothing of what was befalling them and the pressure of this thought soon became too strong for her to enjoy the unresponding stillness of the moonlit fields. She closed her eyes that she might feel more intensely the presence of a love and sympathy deeper and more tender than was breathed from the earth and sky. That was often Dinah's mode of praying in solitude, simply to close her eyes and to feel herself enclosed by the divine presence. Then gradually her fears, her yearning anxieties for others, melted away like ice crystals in a warm ocean. She had sat in this way perfectly still, with her hands crossed on her lap, 
and the pale light resting on her calm face, for at least ten minutes, when she was startled by a loud sound, apparently of something falling in Hetty's room. But like all sounds that fall on our ears in a state of abstraction, it had no distinct character, but was simply loud and startling, so that she felt uncertain whether she had interpreted it rightly. She rose and listened, but all was quiet afterwards, and she reflected that Hetty might merely have knocked something down in getting into bed. She began slowly to undress, but now, owing to the suggestion of this sound, her thoughts became concentrated on Hetty, that sweet young thing, with life and all its trails before her, the solemn daily duties of the wife and mother, and her mind so unprepared for them all, bent merely on little foolish, selfish pleasures, like a child hugging its toys in the beginning of a long toilsome journey, in which it will have to bear hunger and cold and unsheltered darkness. Dinah felt a double care for Hetty, because she shared Seth's anxious interest in his brother's lot, and she had not come to the conclusion that Hetty did not love Adam well enough to marry him. She saw too clearly the absence of any warm, self-devoting love in Hetty's nature to regard the coldness of her behavior towards Adam as any indication that he was not the man she would like to have for a husband. And this blank in Hetty's nature, instead of exciting Dinah's dislike, only touched her with a deeper pity. The lovely face and form affected her as beauty always affects a pure and tender mind, free from selfish jealousies. It was an excellent divine gift that gave a deeper pathos to the need, the sin, the sorrow with which it was mingled, as the canker in a lily-white bud is more grievous to behold than in a common pot-herb. By the time Dinah had undressed and put on her nightgown, this feeling about Hetty had gathered a painful intensity. Her imagination had created a thorny thicket of sin and sorrow, in which she saw the poor thing struggling, torn and bleeding, looking with tears for rescue and finding none. It was in this way that Dinah's imagination and sympathy acted and reacted habitually, each heightening the other. She felt a deep longing to go now and pour into Hetty's ear all the words of tender warning and appeal that rushed into her mind. But perhaps Hetty was already asleep. Dinah put her ear to the partition and heard still some slight noises, which convinced her that Hetty was not yet in bed. Still she hesitated, she was not quite certain of a divine direction. The voice that told her to go to Hetty seemed no stronger than the other voice which said that Hetty was weary, and that going to her now, in an unseasonable moment, would only tend to close her heart more obstinately. Dinah was not satisfied with a more unmistakable guidance than those inward voices. There was light enough for her, if she opened her Bible, to discern the text sufficiently to know what it would say to her. She knew the physiognomy of every page, and could tell on what book she opened sometimes on what chapter, without seeing title or number. It was a small, thick Bible, worn quite round at the edges. Dinah laid it sideways on the window ledge, where the light was strongest, and then opened it with her forefinger. The first words she looked at were those at the top of the left-hand page, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. That was enough for Dinah. She had opened on that memorable parting at Ephesus, when Paul had felt bound to open his heart in a last exhortation and warning. She hesitated no longer, but opening her own door gently, went and tapped on Hetty's. We know she had to tap twice, because Hetty had to put out her candles and throw off her black lace scarf. But after the second tap, the door was opened immediately. Dinah said, "'Will you let me come in, Hetty?' and Hetty, without speaking, for she was confused and vexed, opened the door wider and let her in. What a strange contrast the two figures made, 
visible enough in that mingled twilight and moonlight. Hetty, her cheeks flushed and her eyes glistening from her imaginary drama, her beautiful neck and arms bare, her hair hanging in a curly tangle down her back, and the baubles in her ears. Dinah, covered with her long white dress, her pale face full of subdued emotion, almost like a lovely corpse into which the soul has returned charged with sublimer secrets and a sublimer love. They were nearly of the same height, Dinah evidently a little taller as she put her arm round Hetty's waist and kissed her forehead. "'I knew you were not in bed, my dear,' she said in her sweet, clear voice, which was irritating to Hetty, mingling with her own peevish fixation like music with jangling chains. "'For I heard you moving, and I long to speak to you again to-night, for it is the last but one that I shall be here, and we don't know what may happen to-morrow to keep us apart. Shall I sit down with you while you do up your hair?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Oh, yes,' said Hetty, hastily turning round and reaching the second chair in the room, glad that Dinah looked as if she did not notice her earrings. Dinah sat down, and Hetty began to brush together her hair before twisting it up, doing it with an air of excessive indifference which belongs to confused self-consciousness. But the expression of Dinah's eyes gradually relieved her. They seemed unobservant of all details. "'Dear Hetty,' she said, it has been borne in upon my mind to-night that you may some day be in trouble. Trouble is appointed for us all here below, and there comes a time when we need more comfort and help than the things of this life can give. I want to tell you that if ever you are in trouble and need a friend that will always feel for you and love you, you have got that friend in Dinah Morris at Snowfield, and if you come to her or send for her, she will never forget this night and the words she is speaking to you now. Will you remember it, Hetty? "'Yes,' said Hetty, rather frightened. "'But why should you think I shall be in trouble? "'Do you know of anything?' Hetty had seated herself as she tied on her cap, and now Dinah leaned forwards and took her hands as she answered. "'Because, dear, trouble comes to us all in this life. "'We set our hearts on things which isn't God's will for us to have, "'and then we go sorrowing. "'The people we love are taken from us, "'and we can joy in nothing because they are not with us.' Sickness comes, and we faint under the burden of our feeble bodies. We go astray and do wrong, and bring ourselves into trouble with our fellow men. There is no man or woman born into this world to whom some of these trials do not fall, and so I feel that some of them must happen to you, and I desire for you that while you are young you should seek for strength from your Heavenly Father, that you may have a support which will not fail you in the evil day." Dinah paused and released Hetty's hands, that she might not hinder her. Hetty sat quite still. She felt no response within herself to Dinah's anxious affectation, but Dinah's words uttered with solemn pathetic distinctness affected her with a chill fear. Her flush had died away almost to paleness. She had the timidity of a luxurious pleasure-seeking nature, which shrinks from the hint of pain. Dinah saw the effect, and her tender anxious pleading became the more earnest till Hetty, full of a vague fear that something evil was some time to befall her, began to cry. It is our habit to say that while the lower nature can never understand the higher, the higher nature commands a complete view of the lower. But I think the higher nature has to learn this comprehension, as we learn the art of vision, by a good deal of hard experience, often with bruises and gashes incurred in taking things up by the wrong end and fancying our space wider than it is. Dinah had never seen Hetty affected in this way before, and with her usual benignant hopefulness she trusted it was the stirring of a divine impulse. 
She kissed the sobbing thing and began to cry with her for grateful joy. But Hetty was simply in that excitable state of mind in which there is no calculating what turn the feelings may take from one moment to another, and for the first time she became irritated under Dinah's caress. She pushed her away impatiently and said, with a childish sobbing voice, "'Don't talk to me so, Dinah. Why do you come to frighten me? I've never done anything to you. Why can't you let me be?' Poor Dinah felt a pang. She was too wise to persist, and only said mildly, "'Yes, my dear, you're tired. I won't hinder you any longer. Make haste and get into bed. Good night.' She went out of the room almost as quietly and quickly as if she had been a ghost but once by the side of her own bed she threw herself on her knees and poured out in deep silence all the passionate pity that filled her heart. As for Hetty, she was soon in the wood again, her waking dreams being merged in a sleeping life scarcely more fragmentary and confused. End of chapter 15